Okay, I still feel really dorky up here, but, and especially when one of my favorite lady figures, who's kind of like a mom figure to me, is pointing at me and laughing. (laughs) Mark chapter 13. This is that famous discourse that Jesus gave. It's called the Olivet Discourse. The reason why is it it was done on Mount, the Mount of Olives. And it is the longest discourse that Jesus has in the New Testament with relationship, other than the Sermon on the Mount, the longest discourse with relationship to what the end is going to look like. We have so far come through the first two-thirds of this chapter, Mark chapter 13. What we've seen is Jesus gives some general things of how the world is going to look the closer the end of the age comes. And then he's zeroed in on some specifics, especially that start in, the, in that last seven-year period, commonly known as the tribulation period, that Jesus pinpoints an event in the middle of that seven years, three and a half years into it after the beginning, and the great apostasy, the great abomination that's going to happen in a rebuilt Jewish temple, which could go up really fast. It's ready to roll. I've seen some of the instruments. The last time I went to Israel, now about 12 years ago, I've seen some of the instruments there for the rebuilt temple. But I, I want to tell you something. The rebuilt temple, when it comes up, has one prophetic purpose. And that is to be the place that the coming Antichrist will desecrate. It isn't going to be where God chooses to say, okay, let's go back to temple worship. As a matter of fact, you read the book of Hebrews and you find out, no, that God has obliterated the old covenant issues, which were merely a shadow of the things to come. And the whole thing is fulfilled in Jesus. So the third temple, the temple that's coming, that one day will be rebuilt on the temple mount, is not going to be for the purpose of God's presence to reside there. It's going to be for the presence of the Antichrist to reveal himself as the true man of sin and man of lawlessness that he is. That is coming, and it's much closer than any of us would probably think. And, And like I've shared with you, I do believe that Antichrist is alive today. And you go, wow, where is he? Who is he? Can you point to him? Is it a man? Is it a woman? Is it the Bible gives us some pretty good clues as to who Antichrist is and what his background is. But think of this in this passage that we're going to read today that really starts in verse 28 in the book of Mark in verse 28. We're going to see that this last passage in this chapter, one of the things Jesus said is nobody knows the day nor the hour of his coming. And if that nobody, he says, not even the angels in heaven, not even the son. He's saying, I don't even know, but the Father knows. And all things are for his time frame. So I got to ask you a question. If the angels don't know the exact timing of the end, if Jesus didn't know the exact timing of the end, do you think Satan knows it? Absolutely not. And ever since the promise Jesus made in John 14, if I go away, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Ever since he made that promise, went to the cross, died, and was resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven where he is now at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us. That's pretty cool, huh? You get me going, I get excited about those things. Jesus is there. 
Satan has wondered, just like every generation of Christians, could this be the time? Could this be the time? And so my, per- my personal view is that Satan has an Antichrist on the deck, on deck ever since the first century. He's always had one because he doesn't know when the day or the hour is going to be. But when the time comes, bingo, he's got his man. Now, we are unlike any time in history right now when there's a convergence of prophetic signs that we are so close to this last seven-year period kicking off. We're so close to the trumpet sounding, the dead in Christ rising, then we which are alive and remain being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Do I get an amen on that one? We are so close. How close? I don't know. But I will tell you this for certain. Three weeks ago when I started this teaching in Mark 13, we're three weeks closer to Jesus coming. And what he says at the end of this chapter nearly 2,000 years ago, is the same message that we should walk out of here with this morning. And that message, four times he says, be on the alert, look up, be on the alert. Because we, unlike any generation, are starting to see some of these things come to pass. The beginning of some of these things. So, now, as we get in verse 28, and we move through the end of the chapter, 28 through 37... We're going to take a look at what Jesus said. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. And we're going to take a look at that. And then we're going to see his conclusion to this whole thing. And that is, I've already told you, take heed, watch, be on the alert. Look for my coming at any given moment. But let's go back. Look at verse 28. Now learn the parable from, what does it say? From the fig tree. Not from a fig tree. From the fig tree. That's important. When its branch, which branch? The fig tree. Not just any old fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. Now, Understand this. Isn't it called, well, agriculture, and then they call it horticulture? Funny word, huh? Anyway, the study of plants and things like that. When does something shoot forth with a tender, new shoot? Isn't it after it's pruned? You prune it down. It sits for a while, even sometimes dormant. And then when the time is right, New shoots begin. That's what he's talking about. Take, learn a lesson from the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree. We're going to talk about what the fig tree is. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, in just an agricultural perspective, understand that in the, the, the springtime, that's when new leaves begin to shoot off the fig trees. Figs were all over the place. In Israel, probably as Jesus is giving this Mount of Olives speech, his discourse, he probably is even pointing to a grove of fig trees. When you see these new shoots come off on the fig tree, then you know that summer is near. Okay, well, here's what happens in spring. The new shoots come off. The new shoots don't immediately provide fruit. The fruit comes a little bit later as the new shoots shoot off 
The next thing within weeks are leaves. Then the leaves begin, the foliage comes, and as the foliage comes at the same exact time, that's when the little fruit buds start happening. And so you have the, when you see the shoot, then the fruit ain't far behind. Okay, I get it. So I'm supposed to look at fig trees, look at the fig tree, and look for the shoot. Okay, I got that. Verse 29, even so you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near. All of a sudden, Jesus starts using the third person here. I would think he would say, recognize that I am near. But what he says is when you see these things, when this fig tree that I'm talking about shoots forth a new shoot, then you, you got to know that things are right they're right here. We're right there. When you see these things happen, happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Now, he could be speaking of himself in the third person. Some commentators believe what he's speaking of is the he being the Antichrist, who earlier in the chapter said, Jesus said that he is going to come, and he's going to set his image in the temple, the abomination of desolation. Then at that time, there will be great tribulation, such as has never been on the, on the face of the earth. That the Antichrist, listen, will come will set his image in the temple, will demand that all people have a mark on their forehead or on their hand, the mark of the beast, you've heard of that, without which you will not be able to buy or sell, that, and that mark will not just be a mark that's economic in nature, it'll be a mark that is throwing in your lot, your acknowledgement that this guy is the one I follow. You can't accidentally take the mark of the beast. You know, back in... I don't know, it was about 25 years ago, a company called InfoPet in Los Angeles came out with a, um, an injection into pets, which was a, an RFD chip, so that that way if you lost your pet, you could look up the chip and you find out you know, where the chip is, much like the stuff, I guess, similar technology is what we carry around in our cell phones. Guess what? If your pet got that, he did not receive the mark of the beast. Now, even if your pet turned into a horrible pet after that, <laughs> the technology that will be the eventual mark of the beast may well be in use today. It may be a similar technology to what InfoPet introduced back a couple of decades ago. It may be a technology into what was uniquely introduced, and this wasn't the first time, but with the COVID vaccines. Please understand, I don't believe if you took the COVID vaccine, that is not the mark of the beast. Might it be the delivery system for the mark of the beast? There's a really good, strong possibility that that's true. But if you took the vaccine, that's okay, you're not going to hell. There might be other problems you have. But, <laughs> but nevertheless... And by the way, I want, to, I want to say this very, very clearly, is we want to keep the main thing the main thing in our biblical perspective and in pursuit of God. And that is, I may disagree with you, you may disagree with me in whether we choose, whether I choose, whether you choose to take the vaccine or not take the vaccine, not take the vaccine for COVID. Well, I want to tell you, that's your personal choice and it's my personal choice. So I respect your choice, even if you make the wrong one. I respect your choice. 
And I'm going to ask you to respect my choice in the same way that some theological issues that are not absolutely central to the gospel, we may hold different perspectives on them. Well, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have a love for one another. It's not like, oh, come on in, church. You can sit over here. All the vaccinated, you're going to sit over there. All the unvaccinated, you're going to sit there and kumbaya and hold hands and even greet each other with a holy kiss. Everybody get the, you know, let's... It would be crazy for us to judge one another and to value one another based upon our behavior. Am I right? Then we need to stop doing it. Now, when I say we need to stop doing it, I'm probably talking to the people that are watching on Facebook because I know you guys are already, you know, you're holy, you're pure, you're here, you know. (laughs) Okay, skip that. Keep going, Mick. Okay. The parable of the fig tree. In that statement, learn from the parable of the fig tree. What Jesus is saying is that the fig tree represents something. What does the fig tree represent? We believe it represents Israel. Why? Well, there are three agricultural symbols that are used for Israel in the Old Testament. One is the vineyard. One is the olive tree. And the third is the fig tree. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, don't look at, Wyatt, I didn't even give you these verses, I don't think. But in Hosea 9, 10, it talks about, it's God speaking to Hosea, talking about his people, Israel. And he says, your forefathers were the first fruit, the first generations of figs from your tree. Well, so what is he doing? He's equating the nation of Israel to a fig tree and talking about the fruit. Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah says the Lord is going to judge. And here's the way he sees you people, Israel. Here's the way he sees you. Those of you who love the Lord God with all your heart, you're like a basket of good figs. Guess where figs come from? Don't tell me an olive tree. They come from a fig tree. You're like a basket of good figs. And you people that never respond to the call of the Lord, you're like a basket of rot, rotting, sour, good-for-nothing figs. Oh, okay, if the people are called figs, what do you think the fig tree is? I think it's real clear. It's the nation of Israel. Learn the parable of the fig tree. Learn the parable that I believe there is strong biblical evidence that this is talking about the nation of Israel. Okay, are you with me so far? Whether you agree or not, immaterial. You understand what I'm saying, right? The fig tree is Israel, the nation of Israel. When it puts forth its leaves, not leaves, a new shoot. Oh, when it puts forth a new shoot. Let me talk about Israel for a little bit. Hang on, let me get let me get my notes and situated here. Do you realize that Israel is the only nation on earth that was created by a mandate of the sovereign God? The Lord said to Abraham when he was in the land of Ur and the Chaldees, Abraham, I want you to follow me to a land that you don't know anything about, but I want you to follow me and I'm going to lead you to this land. You follow me and out of you I will make a great nation. Out of you, multitudes will come. Now, I just want you to know, at that moment, Abraham married to his wife, Sarai. And at at that time, how many kids did they have? Goose egg. Nothing. So, and he was how old? Well, we find out later he was 75 years old. So here's old Abraham. Abraham, 
old Abraham, get your cane and follow me into a land that I'm going to show you. And you do that, I'm going to put such a blessing on you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to lead you into a land that will be for your forever possession. This is all detailed in chapter 12 of Genesis. I'm going to lead you into this land and you will be an eternal people who rest in an eternal possession, the land. The land, the possession, the people of Israel. God created. And then over and over in the book of Genesis, God reiterates what was known as the Abrahamic covenant because it was given to Abraham. He reiterates this Abrahamic covenant that you are a people that has been chosen by God. And you go, wait a minute, come on, Mick. Are you telling me that the Israeli people all through the years and all through their history have been a perfect people? No, you'd be nuts if you thought so. But what did God choose them for? His choice doesn't mean that they all make it to heaven without coming through Jesus because most of them have rejected Jesus. What did he choose them for? Two things. One is to guard his holy word, to reveal his holy word to, and to guard it and bring it to the world. Most of the scriptures came through Israeli sources, Jewish sources. The second thing he did is he chose them to be the vehicle through whom the Messiah would be introduced to the world. We see that picture, that allegorical picture, also in in Revelation chapter 12. But you, you're going to be My people. In chapter 15 of Genesis, he reiterates to Abraham, you are my people. You're going to be a great nation. It's like I got some good news and I got some bad news. The good news is you're my people and you're going to be a great nation. The bad news in Genesis, it's revealed, it says to Abraham, that your people, your descendants, and right now, remember, he had no descendants, but your descendants are going to be moved and enslaved to another country And it's interesting, watch this word, for four generations. And then later in the chapter, he says, for 400 years, your people will be enslaved. And so the first statement of a time frame of a generation was how many years? It was 100 years. Most of us are thinking the generation's 40 years, generation 60, generation's 120, a generation. Oh, generation. Okay, well. Put that generation thing somewhere in the back of your mind. You're going to be enslaved. But then after you've been four generations, 400 years in slavery, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to lead you into the land. You're going to possess the land. And by the way, that land's supposed to be an everlasting possession for you. That was the Abrahamic covenant. So after settling with Joshua, Moses dies. Joshua takes over the mantle of leadership under Joshua's leadership. They settle and they, they conquer and defeat the land of Canaan. By the way, In Genesis 15, when the Lord said that after 400 years in slavery, your people are going to come in and possess the land I'm giving them, he also said, you're going to wait that 400 years because the sin of the Amorite has not fully run its course. Sometimes people wonder, why in the world did God commission Joshua to wipe out the people? To wipe out every sign of the people? Part of it is because their sinfulness to the point of child sacrifice, to the point of false worship, to the point of sacrificing kids, babies, to their false gods, that hadn't yet come full course. When it did, God said, okay, enough's enough. My patience is worn out. I'm wiping out these people. Israelites, go get them. So the Israelites were a ragtag group of people that God's 
God, we're, we're inspired by God, we're led by God, we're commissioned by God, we're empowered by God to do what God called them to do. That's the picture. But back to the nation of Israel. After settling in the land of Canaan, after two groups of people, that is the ten tribes that migrated to the north, a little civil war, ten tribes migrated to the war, north, the land of Israel is what they're called. The two tribes that migrated down to the south where Jerusalem is, the land that, or the, the, the tribes of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. So you had Israel and you had Judah. That's what they were called, the two tribes. They were all one people. And for consistently after they settled the land back some 2,500 years ago plus, they have consistently been conquered by other enemies and disposed. They have been driven from their land and scattered throughout the world. That's what is known as the diaspora, the scattering of the Jewish people. And as a result, the Jewish people are all over the world. Egypt did that when they were, they caused them to be enslaved to them. Assyria did that, 722 BC. Babylon did it in 605 BC and then came in 20 years later, 586 or 25, whatever it is, years later, 30 years later, and conquered the rest of Israel and destroyed the temple. Babylon did it. Rome did it in 70 AD. When the temple burned to the ground that Jesus talked about earlier in this chapter, what are the sign uh, Jesus said, look at these great buildings. Aren't they beautiful? Yeah, well, they're going to be burned down and they're, they're going to be destroyed. And he, he didn't say burned. They're going to be destroyed. Stone upon stone, it'll all be taken down. Well, what happened? In 70 AD, the Roman people gathered around and after a period of time in which they, they stopped food from coming in to the city of Jerusalem, they stopped water, they, and where the people had so, so ugly had even reverted to cannibalism in some cases that Rome came in and said, okay, we have, we've sequestered them. They're, Jerusalem's on a hill. Now we're going to come in and we're going to completely destroy them. A lot of the people fled to the temple, the grounds of the temple. The Romans set it on fire. And as it burned and burned because all of the walls, there was stone, there was, there was timber within the stones that was kind of like a shock absorber in the building. And, and then the things overlaid with gold on the top layer, uh, gold plating. And as they burned the temple to the ground, they later took it apart rock by rock because gold had melted and gone down into in the crevices between the rocks. Prophecy of Jesus, absolutely true. But what happened is Rome tried to destroy the Jewish people, just like other nations. The Jews had always retained or maintained what I would call a remnant presence in the land of Israel for 3,200 years. But though they had a remnant presence, they never had political control after 70 AD. The exiles held very, very tightly to this promise. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3. This promise is one in their writings at times of exile. They always come back to this. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it, even while they were in exile. The Lord promised them that one of these days you're coming back. Your nation is going to thrive again. 
lo and behold, in 1948, May, something happened. What happened? That fig tree that had all but dried up shot forth a new shoot. Something happened. The the dried up fig tree budded again. Israel became a nation, 1948, and immediately there was war. Now, I'm going to read from you a few excerpts of this book. And then at the end of the service, I'm going to put a, uh, hopefully, if we can get this to work, I'm going to put a QR code on the screen behind me, and you can use your camera. Didn't work with my iPhone. I don't know why. I think it's too liberal. But anyway, it didn't. But it worked with the Samsung. And if you go onto this QR code, you can download for free an electronic version of this book. And there's several others. The ministry is called Christians United for Israel. C-U-F-I. Kufi is what it goes by. This is, I'm going to read to you some excerpts out of this book called Israel, 70 Years of Miracle. But in 1948, Israel became a nation. From never since 70 AD, ruling their own land, they began once again to rule their land. The shoot came forward from the old dried up tree. After 30 years of promises from the British and other world leaders in 1947, that's the year prior to their independence, the Jewish people finally received formal approval from the United Nations General Assembly for the recreation of an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel. Did you guys hear that? Finally, the United Nations agreed to God's word, with God's word. According to the UN partition plan, the Jews would receive a tiny fraction of the land originally set aside for them by previous agreements. But here it was, UN Resolution 181, passed on November 29, 1947. Despite Jewish leaders, or desperate, I'm sorry, Jewish leaders accepted the offer of these disjointed scraps of land. News of the UN's vote caused Israeli families to dance in the streets. But... Arab leaders rejected the partition plan. You understand that Israel is completely surrounded, except by the Mediterranean Sea to the west. They are completely surrounded by Arab countries. You understand that. Despite the celebration, Arab leaders rejected the partition plan. The local Arab population immediately began six months of attacks against their Jewish neighbors while preparations for statehood went forward. Now, this is still back in night starting in 1947. Then on May 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister, proclaimed Israel's official independence. Big day, folks. 11 minutes later, President Harry Truman of the U.S. was the first world leader to recognize the newborn state of Israel. In that historic moment, God miraculously restored the land of Israel to his people. And the ancient prophecy was fulfilled. Isaiah 66 verse 8. Who who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation be brought forth, in a, brought forth in a moment, yet no sooner in Zion is labor, no sooner is Zion in labor, that is Israel in labor, than she gives birth to her children. Bam! May fourteenth, nineteen forty-eight, the shoot shot forward from the dried-up old fig tree. Celebration, though, was short-lived. The next day, the next day, five Arab countries, armies attacked Israel. 
Short on manpower, resources, and with almost no international assistance, Israel miraculously survived and even gained ground. But independence came at a great cost. They lost 6,300 people in the war, nearly 1% of its entire population. Then finally, after more than a year of fighting, this is the war of independence that began that day after independence was declared, That lasted over a year. The Arab nations made armistice agreements with Israel and withdrew. At that point, for the first time in nearly 2,000 years, the Jewish people could return to their God-given national home. That's cool. But God's incredible preservation, Israel, a little bitty country with a bunch of refugees that come from other places where they've been kicked out, Africa and Asia, that they've come and they've returned to their land with this high hope and this celebration. And now they're a country. And then within 24 hours, they're attacked by five Arab countries. And the incredible miracle is they actually survived. And then for the next almost 20 years, from 1949 to 1967, they grew quickly as Jewish immigrants flooded back to their homeland from all over the world. Jews who had suffered in post-World War II refugee camps were finally allowed to leave Europe. Survivors of the Holocaust, they brought with them a wealth of skills and knowledge to the reborn state, but very little else. Skills and knowledge, no resources. At the same time, the surrounding Arab nations... Now, if you've got a bigger army and more armament, and you've attacked the smaller country that you have learned to hate, and you can't beat them in over a year, how do you think you're feeling? Well, here's how they were feeling. They were uh, so enraged by Israel's existence that they began harshly persecuting and evicting their Jewish citizens. So the Arab countries surrounding them that had Jewish people living in them began evicting their Jewish people. You're no longer welcome here. So thus, more than 850,000 refugees, Jewish refugees from the Middle East and North Africa, were forced to flee their communities, where some of them had been for 2,000 years. They lost everything, their homes, the possessions, their heritage, their religious artifacts, everything. Some went to the U.S. or Europe, but it was Israel that opened its doors without hesitation to welcome home the refugees. Families poured in from Algeria, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Morocco, Syria, Tunisia, Turkey, and Yemen. Why? Because these people in those host countries did not want to acknowledge the fact that Israel even had a right to exist. So you're out of here. They're just, uh, enough for that one. Now, that was 1949 and 1967. 1967, guess what? There's another day. Uh, another day. Another war. It's called the Six-Day War, 1967. The Jewish people formed various collaborative farming communities known as kibbutz. I think that's the wrong section. Hang on. Yeah, here we go. In 1967, here it is, the Six-Day War. Now, this is just not quite 20 years after they've declared independence. And for the entire, actually 19 years later, the entire 19 years, they've been attacked by their neighbors. In 67, Israel faced an invasion of nearly half a million Arab troops positioned along every border. There were terrorist attacks on the borders. Some things never change. 
and uh, Arab leaders spoke openly, and they still do today, of their desire to wipe Israel off of the map and to massacre every Jewish man, woman, and child. You do realize that the Arab nations look at Israel as they call Israel the little Satan. You know that, right? You know who they call the great Satan? The United States, America. So just understand in geopolitical terms, not only do the Arab nations surrounding Israel hate Israel, want to see them dead, they also, in all their propaganda, they want to see us gone as much, if not more, than the Israelis. By June 1st, this is a, they were, let's see, they were attacked Syria, called on Egypt, its ally, to attack Israel. In May, Egyptian troops expelled UN forces, get them out of there. They closed off Israel's access to shipping routes. Israel's allies in Europe and the good old United States refused to intervene and warned, now this is Israel being attacked on all sides, warned not to retaliate so that a war would not be started. But on June 1st, it was clear that if Israel did nothing, the Arab armies on its borders would wipe out the Jewish state. Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq joined Syria and Egypt in preparation to fight Israel. The people of Israel had spent weeks preparing for the slaughter they knew was coming. Then in the early morning of June 5th, Israel's air force launched a surprise attack on Egypt's planes while still on the ground. That was the turning point in the six-day war. Six days. The first thing was a year. Israel would continue to fight and win miraculous victories over their enemy for five more days. The battle for Jerusalem was one of the defining moments. Um, The Six-Day War. Now, there was three no's that came out of the Six-Day War. I'm sorry, the Yom Kippur War. No, the three no's came before the Yom Kippur. All these words that we're not familiar with, right? The three no's came out from the Arab perspective, no peace, no negotiation, and no recognition. And those three no's are still in the Palestinian charter. They want to, the, the first, the second, infantata, called by the Palestinian leaders against Israel. It has one purpose, to try and destroy the nation of Israel, to try to wipe them off of the face of the map or run them into the Mediterranean Sea. The Arabs' perspective is there will be no peace and there will be no recognition. Now, we can go on and on in Israel's history, but I'm going to go just two more little little clips. The Yom Kippur War, six years later. Yom Kippur is the most holy day in Israel. It's a day when everything shuts down, a lot of civil, a lot of national holiday. But those who are faithful and who are religious, they're, they're, they're doing various memorial things to remember that one holy day of the year when God supposedly wipes out their sin. But everything shuts down. It was Saturday, October 6th, Yom Kippur, the Sabbath, 1973. The country was quiet and focused. Egypt and Assyria attacked Israel simultaneously on two fronts. There were less than 500 Israeli soldiers. They they faced an overwhelming force of over 600,000 Egyptians in the south. 
while in the north, 180 Israeli tanks defended against 1,400 Syrian tanks. What I'm saying, we've heard of this David and Goliath thing, the big and the little. Israel was completely outnumbered. But God brought them through. On October 12th, Six days later, motivated by fear of an Arab victory that was backed by the Soviet Union, U.S. President Richard Nixon authorized a massive emergency airlift to Israel. And though vastly outnumbered, Israel shocked the world by surviving the initial attacks, rallying to push the invaders back across the borders. And 18 days after Egypt and Syria first attacked Israel, the Arab leaders agreed to a ceasefire rather than suffer further losses. At some point, you've got you've to realize, no matter how, how, much we have, how much stronger we are than these people, how many more soldiers we have and how many more tanks, that when we attack these people, we never win. So they developed a new strategy. Angered and stunned, this is 1973, Angered and stunned by yet another miraculous Israeli victory. And I'm only giving, I'm scratching the surface. You ought to hear the stories of how God intervened. How God brought one tank driving back and forth across the Golan Heights. And the Syrians saw it and thought there were multiple tanks. Anyway. The Arab world realized that conventional warfare against Israel was not working. Duh. That's because God had put his hand on this country. They had shot forth. The new bud had come forth. They changed, so they changed, the Arabs changed their strategy and sought to isolate Israel from foreign governments by declaring, number one, an oil embargo against the West. Do you guys remember it was 1973, 1974, there was an oil embargo? How many of you are old like me and you remember that? Remember you had, you had rationed, you could get, based on your license plate, you can get gas today. You can't get gas today. They declared an oil embargo. The Arab nations, the, the world's were, everybody was dependent upon Arab oil. The oil crisis lasted from October 73 to March 74. And the propaganda war worked. We'll give you oil. We'll open up the channel of oil again if you stop supporting this rebellious Israeli people. And it worked. And nations began changing their policies toward Israel so that they continue to be bought off with Arab oil. This model of economic and diplomatic warfare became the basis for what's called an anti-Israel BDS movement. Have you heard of that? BDS, boycotts, divestment, and sanctions. And around the world, we even have members of our House of Representatives that support this BDS movement against Israel. Please understand, our nation, though once a staunch Israeli supporter, we have waffled and now the tide has turned. And right now, the present perspective of our government, especially over the last several years, has been very anti-Israel. Understand that. Well, that's enough of that because my time's running out, but I got one more verse to talk about. Go back to Mark, not Matthew, Mark chapter 13 in verse 30. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth 
will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time shall come. And then he gives a little parable about people that were ready, not ready. Verse 35, therefore be on the alert. For you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows. Some of you haven't heard that for a while. That's in the early morning. When the rooster crows, in case he should come and suddenly find and find you asleep. So what do I, what I say to you? I say to everybody, be on the alert. Do you think, is, is it clear, the message of Jesus? Hey, things are coming, guys. When you see the nation bud forth. And then Jesus said, verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. That has caused all different kind of discussion and speculation. What does that mean? This generation will not pass away. Does that mean that the generation that saw 1948, May 14th, 1948, that saw Israel's bud, bud forth, the nation born in a day, that that generation won't pass away? A lot of people believe it does mean that. Well, what's a generation? I remember back in the 80s, they were saying, well, a generation in the Bible is 40 years. You've heard that, right? So 1948, Israel becomes a nation. Oh, then all these things must come to pass before 1988. You back off seven years, so the final of that tribulation period must start in 1981 or a little bit before or whatever. And guess what? It didn't happen. That was all based upon a perspective that this generation would be 40 years and would be the, the people of that time. I think it's talking about something different. The whole last part of this chapter, the whole second half of this chapter, has been about how nations will try to destroy Israel, how the Antichrist will try to destroy Israel. We're not going to get into it. We'll look at this Wednesday night. If you come Wednesday night, we're going to continue on some prophecy studies. But in Revelation 12, we're going to look and see how Satan's career is put in a chapter. And he tries to destroy the nation of Israel. And he's used a lot of nations to be his handiwork to try to destroy the nation of Israel. Literally, this statement, this generation could mean one of two things. It could mean a group of people who are alive in a particular moment in that generation. Or it could mean and it's used this way in Scripture and other places, that this genetic pool, that is, this race, will not pass away. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what he's saying is that the Israelites are going to be targeted all through their existence, but I'm telling you the truth. They will not pass away, and they will see the conclusion of all things. If Satan could wipe out the Jewish people right now, There would be none left. Zechariah chapter 10 would be a prophecy proven to be false. What does that prophecy say? At the coming of Messiah, they, the Jewish people, will look upon him whom they have pierced. They'll mourn for him as for an only son. They'll weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn son. And they will begin a repentance to receive him. First individually, then by family, and then by big group together. And there will be a massive return are a massive repenting of the Jewish people to believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah. Guess what? Satan knows full well, if I can wipe out the Jewish people and there's no Jewish people by the end of this seven-year period, prophecy's dead, God's a liar, I won. Well, guess what? Jesus said, I'm telling you, and I'm telling you this truly. 
When he said truly or verily, verily, you pay attention to that one. I think he's saying these people will not pass away. Remember earlier in this chapter? He said during the days of the great tribulation, God steps in and shortens those days because had they not been shortened, no life would have been saved. But for the for the, the, the sake of the elect, his people whom he chose, he shortens the days. So God is going to make absolute certain that the Jewish nation is going to survive all the way up through the end. When Jesus comes, there will be a remnant. Yeah, some of them are going to have to hide, probably in Petra and Jordan. Some of them are going to have to be protected by God because they're going to flee the Antichrist and the man, uh, maniacal, maniacal, really bad ways that he's going to be with them, trying to kill them off. And Revelation 12 says, when the Antichrist, when Satan through the Antichrist sees that he can't kill off Israel, he turns his aggression on Christians, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what am I going to say to end this sermon? Because I'm over time. And that is this, what Jesus said, guys, take heed. Don't live being asleep. Understand, there's, the puzzle pieces are all being put together. Understand that Jesus coming is right at the door. How would you like it if he came today? Guys, you would miss those Thanksgiving leftover burritos tonight. But it would be worth it. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were caught up in the air right now to see Jesus? Vic, you're gonna, we're going to interrupt your sermon with the rapture. Yeah, that's great. That's great. They're stopped listening anyway. I'm ready to go, you know. But listen, God has a plan. He's got a plan for the Jewish people and he's got a plan for you and you become his people when you choose Jesus. If you haven't chosen Jesus, make today the day. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise and thanks that you control history. Lord, thank you that we can trust you even when things get really difficult, when battles come our way, we can trust you. Lord, you're at work, we love you and we invite you to keep working in us Lord, give us the strength to go through the battles that come our way. Give us the faith. Thank you, Lord, for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's